Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we are going to be talking about conservative approaches to environmental policy, how conservatives should deal with those issues. And so to discuss that with us, we have two guests, two for the price of one, uh, Nate Hoshman, who is a ISI fellow at National Review, and Alex Bosmoski, uh, who is the vice president for programs at Deploy Us. Uh, or deploy slash US is how it's uh, written out. They are also co-authors of a new article in National Affairs, a long article called The Future of Conservative Climate Leadership. So gentlemen, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us, Josiah. Hey, Josiah, first, I got to say, my buddy Nate Hockman, uh, (laughs) my favorite here. Uh, Josiah okay. is not the first or the last to uh, to botch the name, so it's there's a long tradition of Hotch, Hotchman instead of Hawkman. So yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I don't I don't want to cast aspersions on your ancestors, but there is an H in there. <laughs> there is an that's H right. In there. No, no. It's you know, there's actually something sort of uniquely and uh, essentially American about messing up foreign sounding names. So I'm this I'm all for true. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. So let's uh want to dig into the article, but first. Uh, I'd like to give each of you the opportunity uh, to uh, introduce yourself, tell a little bit about your background. Uh, so, Nate Hockman. There you go. Uh, Nailed it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, why don't we go uh, first with you? Because you represent the youth, which, as we know, is the future. Uh, that's what I'm told, at least. I don't know how Alex uh, would feel about that, but I can. Get, I guess I can give his take on that in a second. Um, I'm a ISI fellow at National Review. I just started a few months ago, graduated from Colorado College in May, uh, and I'm also doing a, a Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship this year, working on a longer project about young people, conservatives, the digital age. So I am very tuned in, for better or for worse, into the conversations happening in young conservative politics right now. And Obviously, climate and environmentalism more broadly, as I'm sure we'll get into, is a big part of that. So it's been a it's been a subject of interest for me for a while. I was into the issue of climate change before I really even became a conservative. Um, and people like Alex have, have been doing this since the eco-right wasn't even really a thing. I mean, Alex coined the term eco-right himself. So it was pretty cool to collaborate with him on, on the national affairs piece and give what little value I can give as a younger person uh, in, in my perspective on it uh, while working with a heavyweight who's, who's been around the block. All right. Yes. The Bob Novak, those research uh, fellowships or whatever is a very, very good. A lot of good stuff has come out of that. All right. So uh, Alex Bosmoski, you know, uh, as a representative of us old, oldsters, uh, why don't you, why don't you tell us about yourself? You know, I actually, I thought that I was a young conservative. On- <laughs> Until I started working with Nate, you and then thought, you right, thought. Yeah, I, had yeah, to, yeah. I had to reassess. Uh, it, it was a fun project. I, I've been working on on climate uh, and conservative policy for about ten years, and before that, had a uh, a small business that 
that worked on reducing emissions and, and generating uh, um, carbon offsets in East Africa. Um, and before that worked on a bunch of Republican campaigns and, and the like. So it's been most of my life. I've either been, you know, kind of the odd one out as a, uh, well, for lack of a better term, an environmentalist in, 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 in conservative networks or campaigns. It's, it's cool now to, you know, approach this problem and with, with, with solutions that flow from, from principle. And, uh, that's really been fun to, Time to watch that transition. Yeah, so let's talk yes. about. You mentioned the term "eco right." Nate did. Uh, what is, what is the and and you, Alex, of course, uh, are the originator, the coiner of that term, if you will. So, what is the what is the eco right, and what what distinguishes it from uh, you know your other. Uh, why do you need the, the prefix there? What, what What is it? First, let me just say, it, it's a, so the, the eco-right is an affectionate term for the civic enterprises and civil society on the right who care deeply about climate and conservation. Um, not everybody loves it, but I just have this open challenge here to your listeners that uh, come up with something that's short, that encompasses this broad coalition, loose coalition of conservatives that are working to solve environmental problems. Um, because I've heard some great ones, um, but they're just all really long and kind of tongue twisters and everything. So this, this challenge has been open for a number of years now and a lot of takers, but no, no, no follows through follow throughs. I don't think anyone's super attached to the neologism. Um, it's just the shortest thing we got to, you know, yeah. I, uh, the I think the only issue for me is you know sometimes if you say, if you say eco right someone might think that uh, eco is short for uh, economy or economic and you're like oh okay so you're like for tax cuts and and deregulation or whatever and I want to say yes yes that's true yeah, sure but, uh, look for that yeah yeah there, yeah there is actually I'm not I'm not sure if I'm violating some confidentiality agreement by saying this on the record but there was a a minor back and forth but uh, between us and Yuval uh, when we we're writing the national affairs piece about whether or not eco right has a is it capital E, capital R, or just mm. a capital E? Uh, and so I, I don't know. This I think there's there's varying opinions on exactly what the eco right even is, just in terms of you know the the basic spelling of it. But we'll get yeah. There. I, I and I see now. I hadn't noticed, but I see now as I look at the article that it is capital E, but not capital R. Uh, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that, but. Um, you know, I guess Alex, uh, Alex is still really sensitive about that, so we should probably yeah, not, not open. Uh, there's some interesting concepts, though, <laughs> regardless of what the name is. Um, you know, I'd be yeah, yeah, yeah. To get to the the concept, yeah. I don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, for your listeners' sake, I, I have known Josiah for quite a long time here, so if I if I do sound like I'm being rude to him. I mean, I am <laughs> right. Yes, yeah, but you, you, you. I, I, I haven't known Josiah for a long time, so if it sounds like I'm being rude to him, I'm, I'm just being rude to him. You know, you should probably, man, probably man. should take that I, I, face I think value. that Alex was around when it was really just it was it was sort of a few odd ducks in various places, and we still have a long ways to go, certainly. But for me, as a young conservative coming into the space, it's it's a completely different world. They're like actual institutions now committed to advancing a kind of conservative or conservative friendly 
climate and environmentalist politics. And that just didn't exist until uh, very, very recently. Um, so it's as, as much as those of us, you know, who care about the, the issue of climate change on the right are often frustrated with what we feel like um, is the various defects in the conservative movement when it comes to the issue. Uh, things have moved significantly in the right direction just in terms of institutional power and uh, a commitment to the idea that, you know, environmental issues like climate change are actually something that conservatives should care about. And it's not an affront to conservative principles at all to actually be invested in the issue. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Why, why are environmental issues something that uh, conservatives should care about uh, beyond the sense of, you know, this, uh, like, seems kind of like uh, communism or something, you know, and so you care about it because, uh, you know, whatever they say, you're against it type of thing. Um, you know, what, uh, w- why is there a need for climate leadership uh, on the right or any, any sorts of uh, ideas like that? Well, I, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of different reasons. And Alex can give uh, some, you know, that, that we talked about in the piece specifically, but the, the broader sort of first principles question um, that we touched on a little bit is, is just the fact that as obvious as it sounds to say, conservation is conservative. In fact, it's, it's essentially conservative. There's, there's nothing more conservative than the desire to protect the beautiful things that you love about the natural environment in which your communities are built and pass them on to future generations, right? I mean, in many ways, conservative politics is stewardship of political and cultural forces that you care about. Uh, conservation is stewardship of environmental, uh, you know, places that, that you care about. So it's, it's actually the odd thing isn't that conservatives are embracing environmentalism now. The odd thing is that they were ever disconnected from it. Uh, the, the impulses to be disconnected from it are understandable in one sense in terms of the fact that specifically climate change has been uh, more often than not a Trojan horse for a lot of different disconnected progressive wish list issues for decades now, and that understandably makes conservatives suspicious. But we're trying to move the conversation beyond that and actually get to the, the broader question of, okay, yes, we disagree with a lot of what the climate left, for lack of a better word, is, is in favor of. But that doesn't mean that we just can be apathetic about the issue altogether. We need, we need to do better than that. Yeah. So, uh, and for listeners who don't know, and if you've been paying attention to this show, you probably should know. Uh, but I think a, a important piece of background information that uh, that I haven't that hasn't been mentioned yet is that I myself uh, I haven't I haven't been in the eco right movement for quite as long as Alex, but I have been involved in this area, working on policy and these issues for uh, quite a while now. And I do remember that when I first started out, uh, there didn't seem to be that many of us. Uh, I would sometimes wonder, you know, well, what's wrong with me? You know, did I did I get dropped on my head as an infant or something? Uh, like, why am I so weird? Uh, and now, of course, I, I mean, uh, maybe I uh, maybe I still am pretty weird, but it has seemed like uh, the number of uh, people who are taking this sort of approach of, yeah, I'm conservative, but I think that these are important issues, particularly on climate, but also on other environmental issues, that these are important issues for uh, conservatives to have a kind of like positive agenda on. It, it really does seem to have grown a lot. Uh, so why why do you think that is? Obviously, uh, the Nate mentioned the kind of grounds for suspicion, that this is just kind of a Trojan horse for... 
um, you know, all sorts of left-wing policies, uh, in, you know, the UN, uh, they're the ones that do all the climate reports, right? The UN, the IPCC, uh, Al Gore, all these different people, you know, hippie drum circles. So despite all that, it does seem like, uh, support you, you know, this is a growing movement, uh, and you even have folks like Kevin McCarthy, other, uh, other higher ops who are saying, yeah, yeah, we, you know, it's very important for us to do stuff on, on climate. You, uh, what explains that? Like why, what, you know, how do you see Alex that, uh, have, having developed in the last uh, six, seven years? Well, I think there's three things, maybe four. Let's see what happens. Um, one I, I just say, uh, I think, uh, I always like when I'm starting out a list to just randomly say a number yep. and then I know I have to come up with whatever the number is. So you got four. 14 right, points. <laughs> I was going to say four. And, and then I thought, you know what, let's, let's just go with three and do a bonus if I, if I get there. So one is politics. You know, I think, uh, there, this is the, the, the least, um, the most transactional of, of the reasons I suppose is, is just the political reality that, that a lot of voters like super majorities of voters care about clean energy. And now we're at super majorities of voters that kind of acknowledge the basic need to mitigate risk of climate change. And that presents, you know, big risks to like Republican majorities, not every district or every state, but uh, to, to majorities into presidential elections. And that, you know, the walloping that ours took in suburban America in 2018 is, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks that, uh, um, are alienated from kind of do nothingism on, on climate issues. Uh, so I think politics is one experience is another, um, important reason. You know, there's just, there's just so much, um, tangible kind of suffering that we can recognize as being made worse by um, climate change over time. Now that doesn't, not, not every weather event or whatever, it really bugs everyone um, when, when the media goes nuts trying to attribute like you know, every fire or every storm to, to climate change. But, you know, over time folks notice that the migration patterns are changing for the ducks that they hunt or that the, um, you know, the hunting season looks a lot different from the stand or that we've lost like 30 ice fishing days on, um, up in, uh, in Wisconsin over, you know, the course of like my dad's lifetime. Um, those kind of, those kind of things start to change your perception of how real and, and how at home this issue is. And then the, the last thing, the thing that gets me you know, really excited is that uh, I think civil society and, and our the civic enterprises on the eco right are making a huge difference. I mean, for for a generation now, when uh, anytime a, a, a Democrat wants to hire someone to work on climate or to introduce a bill um, relevant to clean energy or, or climate or adaptation, um, there's you know just armies of experts and and grassroots and um, and PhDs that are ready to ready to help, and then there's a ton of money on the environmental left to have their back and and at home. And there's a lot of trust in between the Demo- like democratic politicians and environmental civil society that doesn't exist on the right. And so, as we've seen this institutional power grow, 
on the eco right, and there's more credible sources. Um, there's more um, good research, um, policy research. There's more help, not or not help, but there's more um, organized civil society at home that shows the reality that you know there's a lot of voters that you know care deeply about these things and are proud of their members for leading on them. Um, as that like circle, as, as those civic enterprises get stronger, there's just more capacity to do stuff um, and more capacity to compete in like the marketplace of ideas with the sort of stale and failed um, policies that have been, you know, accreting on the, on the left as, as Republicans have sort of stayed out of the competition on, on climate. So yeah, as, uh, th- that's really been the, the X factor that's been fun to watch. I would add just one one other thing to that. Um, Alex touched on it, but the the climate issue and, and people like Kevin McCarthy know this as well as as anyone. It's just a ticking time bomb with young voters. Now, young voters are more liberal across the board, uh, if, at least if, if if current polling holds. So i I don't want to be naive about the idea that if the GOP embraces a more aggressive climate agenda, we're suddenly going to be winning. You know, majorities of people under the age of thirty or something. I, I don't think that's true, uh, but could we shave off five, six, seven, eight, ten percentage points? Maybe. I mean, it's 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 worth a try. Like this is consistently an issue that young voters across the ideological spectrum, who identifies everything from progressive to conservative, say they care a lot about. Um, and we're almost certainly leaving some votes on the table by just ceding the issue completely to the left. Um, so as that group, as my age group becomes a more and more dominant force in American electoral politics, it's just going to become more and more important for the GOP to actually have a substantive climate agenda that offers a viable alternative to the one that the left is offering. In the article, you draw a distinction between what you call incrementalists and vanguardists. It's kind of like a division uh, categorization within the eco right. What do you? What, what are incrementalists and vanguardists, and how do they differ from each other? That's an Alex question. <laughs> oh, his, right. his nomenclature we together. You know, and in in hindsight, you know, Nate, we haven't talked about this, but I, uh, <laughs> I'm kind of wishing we we would have uh, because we're just you know making up these labels, right? They they reflect the reality, but no one's named these things before. So, we're, uh, innovationist or something might have been better for for the incremental side. But in general, there's this, there's a, just, there's a spectrum of, of perspectives um, among conservatives that care deeply about climate change. And we just, we grouped um, kind of where those perspectives seem to congregate and, and they seem to congregate into sort of two camps. So one camp um, is really focused on hunting for tons and uh, right now like trying to find the opportunities to actually get stuff done, you know, in a bipartisan way in Congress or in state capitals right now um, that moves the ball forward on, you know, empowering markets to deliver decarbonization. They're really focused on, I mean, the, the, the first question would be kind of what is politically possible. And then the second question would be what's the, best policy we can navigate within the realm of the politically possible. Um, uh, and th- that, that, that camp, we, we sort of termed incrementalist, although maybe innovationist would be better. I, I don't know. We're not wedded to, to these, but uh, 
the vanguardist camp are you know really see the scale of the problem and the opportunity for free enterprise to lead on solutions but are less confident in like the specific policy interventions that government might take and you know want to rely on a on on a pricing instrument on a primarily on a carbon tax to to kind of um, empower like free enterprise to find the lowest cost ways to deliver decarbonization. So they re- might recognize the political obstacles to, you know, a, a carbon tax is, um, but see it as essential and therefore want to really focus on building the coalitions to, to get us to pricing carbon. Um, now these, these two different, you know, these, we, Nate and I both know, and Josiah, you know, and I'm sure Doug knows too, like, plenty of people across both of these kind of camps and they're oftentimes, you know, great friends and they work well together. And these are not necessarily warring tribes, but we, we don't always work together as closely and as well as we should. Um, and we should, because, you know, the, our priorities and um, policy differences actually really make the, make each other stronger and the sort of policy goals of, of both, of both these camps are more efficiently pursued um, with both incremental and vanguardist policies. So that, that came out a little bit jumbled, but. Uh, um, well, yeah, well, and I mean, just, just to be candid, like we all, like Alex said, want the same goal in the abstract, which is to decarbonize as quickly as is politically possible, broadly, hopefully within the, the framework of conservative principles, but there are substantive disagreements between the camps. Uh, and they, they flare up from time to time, like, you know, disagreements within any political coalition does. Uh, and, and one of the genesis is genesis is of the peace was our desire to try to resolve some of those sort of latent disagreements that had never really been discussed at length. They, they would flare up in arguments on Twitter and, you know, sniping in op-eds and stuff from time to time. But uh, we wanted to really dive into the, the possibility of a, a real political coalition that wasn't just uh, a group of think tanks working on this policy or that policy, but a self-conscious political coalition that actually saw itself as a cohesive political entity with an identity called the eco-right that was pulling in the same direction and working together cooperatively as much as possible, despite having you know disagreements about strategy or even particularly about you know a particular substantive policy. And, and so we were... Part of the, the the idea behind the piece was to show that while, of course, there will always be substantive disagreements and it's okay to disagree, um, there are a lot of things that the two groups do that complement one another as well, and we should lean into that. Are yeah. these are these labels sort of exonyms in the sense of this is how you're characterizing them? Do any do, do these various factions sort of embrace these or or other terms for their own unique views? Well, the, the, the specific terms that, that we use in terms of the incrementalists and vanguardists, like that was, as far as, as I know, that was the first time the term was used was, was this essay. So certainly I, I don't think any of them would call themselves that. That was just a, a, a way to categorize these two different distinct groups, which are distinct groups, but don't necessarily have a, a nomenclature, you know, to go along with it. Um, the term eco-right, I don't know, Alex can probably speak to that more, 
Uh, I think that is probably more used by people who are kind of vanguardist pro-carbon tax people. A lot of people just talk about conservative environmentalism or free market environmentalism or, you know, limited government environmentalism. There's a lot of different terms. The terms don't matter as much as the concepts. It's just helpful to introduce some words to to refer to these broader, broader political phenomena. Yeah, I think that there's like there's there's quite a richness of different policy perspectives on the right with respect to climate and these different like leaders and thinkers and civic enterprises. They, you know, they're out there telling their audience like, you know, we have conservative solutions to climate change or we have free market solutions to climate change. And we try to just organize sort of how how those um, how the perspectives vary across all the different groups and folks that are that are you know pursuing what they're calling conservative solutions to climate change and so we have different conceptions of what that is um the really neat thing is you know these there's we kind of have two failures there's there's two well i guess there's three failures um that sort of add up to the political challenge of climate change one is an externality the uh, you know unpriced pollution externality that causes costs um um, on unconsenting third parties, um, one is a research and development market failure that like leads to the underproduction of investment in innovation and invention, um, the things that we that we need to you know get to z- z- low and zero and negative emissions technologies, and then the third you know which is sort of endemic to everything the government does to try to correct these things is government failure, um, which is you know, pervasive and pretty much plagues most things that the government does. And sometimes the government failures are worse than the market failures they're trying to fix. Um, and different parts of this, of the Eco-Right Coalition um, are strong in policy prescriptions that like better address one or the other of those things. Um, and, you know, for example, like the, what we'd call what we called incrementalists are really strong at overcoming that R and D market failure. Like there's a lot of policies that, you know, are, are advanced that uh, by, by the incrementalist side of the eco, right. That are super effective at, um, or uh, at solving for the R and D market failure. Um, And they, you know, they also can help with, with some of the externality market failure, but it's uh, not as efficient. And, you know, same with the carbon tax on, on the vanguardist side, carbon tax is the most efficient instrument, you know, that we can, you know, the most efficient instrument available to, for the mass adoption of existing technologies, but it's less efficient at uh, solving the R and D market failure and, you know, (laughs) government failures, we have to, we have to solve by unwinding the worst government interventions that are meant to proxy for these things. So conservatives have just a ton of work to do, sort of fix the mistakes that the government has already, or that we as a Republic have, uh, our government has, uh, has made um, that have made climate change worse and made it harder to solve. And at the same time, we have to solve for these, you know, these two, these two market failures, hopefully in ways that are complementary and, you know, don't lead to more government failure. I, well, I, I would like to, a lot in that little monologue there. So, I, sorry I, I like, that. I like to, I like to suggest a third term is one that I like to embrace is pethacookasian. Uh, like tr- try to pop. Not, not enough that. syllables. We need, we need more um, syllables. Yeah. It's not going to cut it. Pethacookasian. What, what is this, Doug? 
Uh, I, I think this is uh, my view of this is this would be very tech optimistic that that ultimately the solution that we're going to find for climate change is going to be technology dr- driven. Now, I believe that our, our, our leader, Jim Pethokoukos, would actually support a carbon tax to create that market so that we can have the, the technological solutions. So I would I would be in his camp. Well, that's awesome. I, firstly, as a fan of of, of Jim Pethokoukos, uh I, I think that's great. I think there is a. Uh, By the way, if you think I have trouble uh, pronouncing Nate Hockman, you know, <laughs> you should go back. And we have Jim uh, on the show. See what I see what I did to his name. Yes. Well, that's cool. I mean, I, I noticed on CNBC. I'm pretty sure they just call him Jimmy, right? Um, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't know. I actually stopped him on the street once, and he was like, "Oh, yeah, from Twitter." <laughs> and then he ran. He just yeah, ran. That was the only time. It is shocking how regular that is in DC. <laughs> like having lived here for you know a month or so, but that's completely unrelated to climate change. <laughs> well, maybe not because I lived there for like eighteen years, and we moved to Milwaukee, and I don't think that uh, um, the, the the swampy summers were not uh, inconsistent with that decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess that's probably uh, that, that could be to the benefit of the eco right. Is as things get worse and worse and hotter and hotter in DC summers, you know, more Republicans will come around just for 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 uh, for virtue of their sheer survival instincts. That's what we're banking on. But I think Doug, you were the one that introduced the Pethokoukasian um, idea, right? Was that you? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. You know, I, there's there's another. I don't know what what we'd call it because we're obviously really into just neologisms here um but there's this like uh big project oriented um kind of strand of thought where um where you know like like plowing money into into you know nuclear fusion or something um potentially really valuable um uh, or, or or needed kind of government interventions because the private sector won't do it and uh and the, the potential payoff is so is so enormous, and they can kind of ignite the national spirit around around something. So I, I there is like a I have kind of I mean that exists on the on the eco right. I think it's also pretty substantial in the what what do they call it in Josiah the eco modernist folks. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. Yes. Yeah. Is there a? But I don't I don't know what you what you. I'm sure there's a, a they they also like neologisms. I'm sure they've come up with some some kind of name for that sort of big projectism. Um, I have a I have a slightly more substantive question. So, what's what 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 really is the difference between the eco right and say the eco left in 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 this sense? Like, what in terms of you know, if you're looking at your policy toolbox, I would think that a lot of these policy tools are similar. Uh, let's use the example of a carbon tax. Both the right and the left might suggest a carbon tax. What makes it different in your hands versus in the hands of a progressive? What's maybe the limiting factor? How, you know, why would a conservative say, well, I've heard the left proposing a policy. Now I'm hearing somebody that's claiming to be on the right uh, promoting this policy. How do they get comfortable um, that this is now suddenly a conservative policy agenda or a policy tool? Well, I mean, it depends what kind of eco left you're talking about, because a a section. I mean, if, it depends how far left you go. the The hard eco left is actually pretty skeptical of a carbon tax and even vocally opposes it because it doesn't do enough to dismantle 
capitalism, um, right? I mean, if, if, you're, if, if you're on the real eco-left, uh, you view climate change as a sort of inevitable outgrowth of capitalism, and you see dismantling capitalism as, as sort of a, a crucially important component of the fight against, you know, environmental degradation and, and climate change. So there, uh, you know, this is not a fringe position. Major uh, sort of left-wing climate activists like Na- Naomi Klein have, you know, been regularly very critical of a carbon tax. Uh, it is true that obviously it's the left is more favorable to a carbon tax than the right as it stands today, just because the left is more favorable to the idea of climate policy uh, more broadly. But you know, our point is that actually, if there's going to be a conservative solution to climate change, the most market-friendly, uh, local-oriented, sort of limit, limited government way to actually sort of substantively reduce carbon emissions in a way that preserves the things that we care about in economics and culture and, and politics, a carbon tax is about as good as we're going to get. Um, so the differences between the, the climate left and the, the, the climate right are, I think you can trace them back to a lot of the same differences between the left and the right more broadly. It has to do with, uh, at, a, at a very first principles level, it has to do with, you know, your view of human nature and, um, and uh, the role of governments and uh, a skepticism of central planning. But that obviously has downstream effects for how you think about climate policy and where you see the role of local associations, uh, markets, private business owners, et cetera, vis-a-vis how much confidence you place in the hands of central planners in Washington, D.C., uh, so the the kind of command and control stuff that you see from, you know, the Biden administration and the Obama administration is a good example of what I think folks on the left are much more prone to support in terms of climate stuff, whereas, uh, you know, folks on the right really are, are skeptical of that, rightly, in my opinion, and, and see kind of things like a carbon tax where we can price out carbon upstream and let private businesses and firms figure it out from there as as a much more feasible solution. You know, I'm not... Nate, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm just going to um, slightly disagree with one of the things you said there, uh, which is uh, I'm not actually. We'll talk after the podcast. Yeah. How dare you? Okay. Well, yeah, I wanted to stir up some trouble between you. This is, this is good. It's not that, not that hard. We can talk about Teddy Roosevelt, but yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Alex. Uh, well, first, um, let's just say that like there's – Sometimes I think it'd be actually kind of fun to sort of, um, you know, be a pro- be progressive for a day um, because it's fun to be creative. And the and I, I don't mean this disparagingly to like my progressive friends or anything, but like if you if you see a problem, if there's a problem in the world and you don't and your principles don't constrain what like tools are available to government to solve for that problem there's so many, there's like infinite possibilities for how you could come up with, you know, what sort of programs um, or regulations the you know, a government could pursue in order to solve for that problem. It, it sounds, it's like a, it's a, a fun, creative problem set. You know, we have this really wicked problem of climate change. There's so many, so many sources of emissions and systems in, embedded in, uh, um, in the market failures that lead to climate change. And, there's like unlimited types of policy interventions and, you know, conservatives generally feel pretty constrained with what the appropriate role for government is. And you look for the most elegant solution that leads to the least government failure and the least threat to, you know, liberty and and dignity. And uh, a carbon tax is kind of a wonderful solution that solves for lots of those things. And, 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 and 
you know, prevents the need for all sorts of kind of government authority. Like most, most, most other regulations or, or standards or, um, you know, even, even subsidies and stuff, um, like they require a lot of information, right? You're, you're either, you got to track the pollution that comes out of a factory or you have to, uh, collect all sorts of information about the technology that a particular firm is using, or you have to compare like the cost benefit analysis of the government investing in this or that technology. I mean, there's just a lot of size and scope required in some of those policy solutions. Whereas, you know, I think conservatives would be comforted in the really simple and, and administratively simple solution that, uh, just sort of puts a puts a price on the the cost of the pollution and then lets the free market free market move. Of course, like that, you, it's not really uh, an option when you're trying to really accelerate research and development or deployment of a particular type of technology. Um, but um, that you know, I, I think Doug, maybe I, I got oh, one way that your answer could or your question could be answered is uh, I don't know to what extent this is true, but it, it, I want it to be true that uh, humility is a big part of the answer um, that we know the problem, but we don't know exactly what all this, what, what, what the, the solution will look like. We don't have an ideal that we're aspiring to. Like there's not a, not a way that we want the world to look. And then we're using government to achieve that end. It's, it's which if, if, you know, if you did, it requires a lot of, a lot of government. Um, but the humility of, of recognizing the problem without full clarity into all the details of the solution, like that governs or informs kind of a policy set, like based on humility that doesn't empower technocrats to make a ton of decisions for future Americans. Um, I mean, so uh, that's one way, but then, um, well, I, I suppose I should probably shut up, but I do, I do the thing I was going to take issue with Nate on is, is to the to what extent the environmental left is more open to something like a like a carbon price than uh, than the eco right, um, which uh, well, is, wait what what yeah. specifically are you disagreeing with? Because I was saying that they were well, I wasn't saying they're less open necessarily than the eco right, but I was saying there are a lot of people on the on the climate left who are very critical of a carbon tax oh, as yeah. an actual policy prescription for climate. I mean, change. I, I just think it's 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 kind of incredible, right? That um, just how much the left can move the goalposts on these things. So the limiting, the, the limiting principle that Doug was asking about is probably has to do with revenue um, in terms of if you're you know, taxing carbon and then using the revenue to like um, uh, do Medicare fund, for all or something. Yeah. Fund, fund like, you know, universal solar panels or um, something. Um <laughs> it would be a lot less attractive than if you're using it to like untax, um, untax income or labor or capital. But um, the, the other thing is just in the history, we haven't gotten like anything major done on environmental issues um, for like 30 years. And then we did get some pretty big stuff done at the very tail end of the Trump administration. But the, there's like this self-sabotage on the left with a lot of, you know, envi- opportunities for for meaningful bipartisan reform that just seems to not be part of the the narrative. You know, the Republicans are always the bad guy narrative. Um, you know, we, there was a, a market based 
um, some you know market based Senate bills, bipartisan Senate bills, in in the the late two thousand or you know the you know, 2006, 2007, 2008, um, and uh, that the Obama administration, you know, chose to throw under the bus, um, and in, in order to to pursue Obamacare, the Biden administration right now is, you know, balking at potential uses of of carbon pricing to um, as a as a revenue raiser, um, in, in favor of you know hiking corporate and in individual income taxes. So like the People will say on, on on principle that they're willing to work with Republicans on on something that they might be able to build consensus on, you know, out in the open they'll say it, but there just doesn't seem to be a lot of political capital ever invested in actually achieving that bipartisan consensus, and that's not really going to change until the eco right, you know, has has more power to help uh, to you know to when you come to the negotiating table having you know some kind of clout on par with the clout that the environmental left brings to the to the democratic side of the table so final question uh slight change of topic but uh, so nate in addition to being a uh, prominent political commentator and uh, environmental thought leader you are also a well-known advocate uh for neck training uh training uh one's <laughs> neck muscles so I would like. I thought to- you were going to say also tall and handsome. I mean, you could you could have continued with the kind of like uh, the various sort of uh, profligate well, uh, compliments I mean, if you like. Look, I'm I'm a I'm a heterosexual male, so I don't really uh, <laughs> have any opinions about that. People who want can Google, do an image search of uh, Nate, and and draw their own uh, conclusions. But I did want to ask about like your neck uh, workout routine. How do you maintain? uh the you know the gains uh for your for your neck no i'm i'm the opposite i'm like the poster boy of uh how how badly things can go I, this is what i'm told at least if you don't train neck uh i mean this okay. is All this right. is our friends this is our friends connor harris uh is weirdly into making fun of uh what i'm accused of for for having like a a, a un, unusually small neck so he's constantly getting on my on my case uh-huh. to i mean you to train have it has to be uh, fairly strong to like hold up your your massive like brain right and head. Right? Well, right. So that's my point. You know, it's like I don't need to train weights. Like it's you know, it's walking around with just like a, a three hundred IQ brain in my you know in my head all day is you know it's, it's exhausting. Honestly, it's it's horrible. It's it's uh, every day is a struggle. Yes, yes, yes. Well, just think where you would be, uh, uh, you know, without that. Uh, okay, so. The article, uh, The Future of Conservative Climate Leadership, available now in National Affairs. Our guests have been Nate Hockman and Alex Bosmoski. Thank you very much for joining the Urban Cowboys. That was fun. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.